Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll answer your questions and bring you the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Space Junk, a brand new podcast dedicated to amateur astronomy. My name is Tony Darnell, and I'm from DeepAstronomy.Space, and with me is my co-host and good friend Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes. Hi, Dustin. Hey, Tony, this is uh, good stuff, man. Exciting. I know, right? It's a brand new podcast that we are just get, just taking the wrapper off of. And Dustin and I decided that we would like to get together each week and talk about amateur astronomy because it is a it is a hobby that if you're not into it, you need to be. And if you're already into it, then there's more that you can get out of it. So we wanted to help people who were looking up every single night, uh, either through their telescopes or with their naked eye, to enjoy the heavens and make a podcast. So... I don't know. We, I, Dustin and I were talking before we started the podcast, and we felt like this first one should be uh, about the challenges of visual observing versus imaging with with cameras and and, and uh, telescopes. And so we're going to talk to you about that today during the podcast. We're going to talk about the pros and cons, and and which is better, visual imaging or or uh, visual observing or imaging through a telescope. So we're going to talk about that today. But you know. We, it also occurred to us, you probably don't know us at all. So we're going to take a little time and <laughs> yeah. introduce ourselves. And right. so, Dustin, I guess what I don't, I think it'd be really cool is uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how did, were you always an amateur astronomer? How did you get into this field? And how did you become the CEO of one of the biggest telescope companies in the world? Yeah. So actually, no, no, not at all. This is one of those hobbies, though. I think you can probably agree with this, that uh, it starts as an interest. And I think there there probably aren't many people in the world that don't have an interest when they walk outside and they look up at the night sky. Even in a city, it still blows you away, right? I mean, I was in Nashville at the time, but you walk outside and that interest becomes something more at a certain point. And so maybe you invest in binoculars or a telescope or whatever it is, but then you realize that all of that empty space you're seeing isn't empty at all. And so you start to realize that you can, you know, the, the better the telescope, the better the optics or the camera or whatever it is that gets you into it, you start to realize there's this entire universe around you that you can actually explore, that you can see and you can be a part of and you can take pictures of and share with people and the whole thing. And it becomes what was a hobby is now an obsession. And I mean, that's kind of the story, at least for me. I'm not sure really where you started. but So you, it, so you started by just looking up and... and, and and noticing that there was lots of cool stuff up there and wanted to know more and that and and so you bought a telescope company is that how that worked <laughs> yeah. yeah well you know you know one thing leads to another and then you end up buying the company right no i mean it uh, <laughs> it uh it was a little bit there was a little bit more to it but i mean basically what happened was i honestly thought so yes i had the interest in space i've always had an interest in science but um Jenny, my partner, uh, my business partner here, has been an artist her whole life. She's a painter. And so it was really to inspire her. I thought, you know, I'll love this if I buy a telescope. But if I buy her this telescope, it's going to inspire new artwork and new ideas for her because she was always staring up at the sky, right? And so I actually bought the first telescope for her. 
And it was her idea to hook a camera to it. And then that's when we were both just like, it's over. Like we're, we're no longer doing the business we're in now. We're no longer doing anything else. We are now astrophotographers and we're all in and this is what we're going to do. So we moved to California and uh, we started working at OPT and that was the goal. We just wanted to be around it. You know, we, we wanted to be around the people that knew, and it took us all of about eight minutes to realize that if you want to know about astronomy, the people at OPT had those answers. And so we, uh, we moved out here just to be part of it and just to work with these people. And, uh, once we were here, we just fell in love with the crew, uh, fell in love with the process. And as we started learning more, which I think is what happens with a lot of people, you start realizing what the possibilities are. And then all of a sudden it's like, I mean, you're hooked. It's, it's unbelievable that this stuff exists. And we are literally the first generations living now that could ever, you know, experience this stuff the way we do. I mean, we're taking high-res images of deep space for fun in our backyard. You know, there are no generations that can say that other than the ones living now, yeah. you know. And, and so I just thought, you know, this is something that is not only a blast and incredibly, uh, you know, addictive, but it's just it's unbelievable that it's even a possibility. And so, you know, when Craig wanted to retire, the old owner of OPT wanted to retire. Um, it was, it was an easy decision for us. This was already home at that point. So and then that, so that became an opportunity that let you get the company, but I'm, I'm curious right. about what your story with Ginny though, that did it work? Did, did the buying of the telescope actually enhance her or change her art in any way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, that's well, like, what, what did she do before and then after she had a telescope? So, sure. Um, well, we were both running a company in Tennessee uh, in fitness industry, uh, doing basically analysis for professional athletes, things along those lines, completely unrelated to space, completely unrelated. And, um, you know, in her spare time, she had this art studio and she was painting, I mean, huge. We're talking, you know, 12 foot by 20 foot type paintings on massive canvases, the kind you have to have, you know, these, these gigantic ladders and, and stands to even work on. And so uh, it just kind of transitioned from what she was doing. She started working more with digital art and then, you know, she found astrophotography and it just, I don't know, it just kind of took over both of us. But um, yeah, I mean, she still has a lot of her art. She posts things to Instagram and other places, but she's a phenomenal artist. And I don't think you can look at space and not be inspired, to be honest with you. Oh, that's true. And you know, you bring up a good point about, so you came from the fitness industry and, yeah, and I'll tell yeah. you right now, amateur astronomy is a hobby as many things, but athletic, it is not. You are, <laughs> you are, you are not going to be sitting behind an eyepiece getting, losing weight. I can tell you that much. So yeah. <laughs> unless it's really, really right. cold outside, then you may be burning a lot of fat just uh, <laughs> trying to stay warm but uh yeah that's yeah. true well that that's an interesting story that goes from uh uh one one what the other business uh presumably was doing well and then now you came over to to this uh area and you're killing sure. it man it's just it's just amazing to see this company uh what it's doing i think I think it really offered a, a perspective that was needed because it is so technical. I mean, astronomy and astrophotography and just amateur astronomy, even it's something that I feel like it was very helpful for us to be coming from the outside because it's difficult. 
and it's, in my opinion, way too difficult. It needed to be simplified and it still needs to be simplified. But this is one of the most incredible communities in the world. Um, I've never seen anything like it. People just want to help each other. And it's, I mean, you go to any club. I've never, I mean, I've been to just dozens, dozens of clubs across the country, just visiting and hanging out. And I've never been somewhere where they weren't just completely welcoming. And the only intention there for every person there is how can I help? How can I contribute? And where, where else do you see that? Anywhere. I'm talking about internationally, you know, no matter where you go with astronomy, it's always about helping people uh, experience space and the universe in a new way. And that's unbelievable, right? So that community needs to be served in a better way. Right. And I, I, I guess I agree with most of what you said, except that the idea that, it ha- that, that amateur astronomy is complicated, I, I don't know that it has to be. I mean, I, for example... The, the hobby itself can be absolutely as simple and, and unintimidating as going outside with a planisphere that you might spend, you know, 10 bucks or 20 bucks on and learning the constellations. That's amateur astronomy. And right. it's not hard. It just takes a desire to go out there and figure out what those patterns in the sky are. And so... And, and then you might decide, well, gosh, you know, I really want to see that, br- that bright red dot that's up toward the south right now. Uh, what is that? And so you might look it up on Google Sky or you might get an app out on your iPhone. And I guess that's what people use now instead of planospheres. Nobody uses planospheres anymore. That's those, That's those. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's one of those uh, paper wheels that you get and you you line it up to the date and of the time and the time that you're going to go out and then you hold it up over your head and you look up that's what i used but i just thought it was cool yeah. i still like planets people don't use those anymore now yeah. like now there's an app for you now right, you just right, for hold sure. your phone up and you get it'll tell you this is saturn and, and then, then you get a hubble space telescope views of of saturn <laughs> and you can go to enceladus and all this other stuff whereas before it was you know you just got a little piece of paper and you know oh, that's uh that's saturn. uh right. and, and or that's the big dipper or whatever whatever it was you were trying to find yeah. they're actually more helpful for for constellations so um but it, my point is it does amateur astronomy as a hobby does not have to be intimidating and you can take it as far as you want obviously but you can also stop whenever you want i mean i can tell you now nine times out of ten when you want to go outside observing you're going to pick something that unless you're a dedicated amateur which we're going to talk about a lot more of that in the, in the, in the podcast uh unless you're just dedicated to get these images out you can just grab your uh, your little point and shoot telescope that you put on top of the hood of your car or a little Dobsonian right. or something and right. just, just go look. I mean, it can be that simple and it never has to be more than that. So there's lots of areas that you can enjoy or levels that you can enjoy the night sky under. And we're going to talk about all of them. All well, of them. that's, that's one of the things I'm most excited about, about this podcast. And one of the things that when we started talking about it, I was immediately hooked was just the idea that we can kind of unblur some of those lines because astronomy is such a deep hobby, right? I mean, you start with, like you said, a planisphere, but you take it all the way into the semi-pro and then the professional level and people are still doing these things for fun. And you've got, um, I mean, the, the route, like the difference in how much you have to know, how much you have to be involved is so extreme that it's very, very hard when you're first getting in to find the information that's, that suits you. You know, as a true amateur jumping in and saying, like, I'm the person that doesn't know anything, but I want to get involved. I agree with you. You're absolutely right. But I don't think it's as simple to find the information. And that's the problem. Yeah. And, I, and I really like having an avenue here where we can say, this is for you. This is for you to find that information and to help you along your way and to progress in whichever direction you'd like to. This is for you. 
and you don't have to spend a lot of money if you don't have it you can still enjoy the 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 wonders of the night sky in any kind of way that you can do cuz we want to promote you just getting outside and looking up uh whether whether it be with with equipment or not so the, we're going to talk about all of that stuff in this podcast i guess i want to just tell you real briefly that i got started when i was a kid um, I, I was a big Apollo fan. I love the Apollo mission. I was a kid when that was happening and I actually started out wanting to be an astronaut, but I was quickly, uh, when I looked up what astronauts needed to, to have as far as qualifications go, I quickly realized that wasn't going to work. So I wanted to be an astronomer from there on. And I have, I was very lucky in the sense that when I went to high school in Boulder, Colorado, the, at the time the school district had a planetarium that was available for the school district. And I got a job as, after school uh, as an intern working at the Boulder Valley Schools uh, Planetarium there. And I got to write planetarium shows. I got to talk to the public. I even got to give my own star party because they had a lot of telescopes already there. One of them was an RV6, a Criterion RV6 Newtonian reflector that just had a AC synchronous drive on a worm gear and that was it that was the whole thing and I remember taking that telescope out and finding for the first time the ring nebula I must have passed it a dozen times before I realized I had found it because it was one it didn't have a go-to you didn't type in show me the ring nebula uh, right and boom <laughs> it slews over and gets it I had to find the thing and yeah. I must have passed by it and I had like a 40 millimeter eyepiece in there and so we're looking at what about 30 or 40 power yeah. or something like that and so right. I I must have missed it a dozen times before. I found, and then I finally saw it. And there it was. The ring freaking nebula staring at me right back through all the reaches of space. And I was hooked from there on out. I found it. I couldn't make out. I put in higher magnification eyepieces, but the mount was so bad I couldn't keep it in the, in the field of view. But that was my start in amateur astronomy. And I've always been partial to visual observing over mm -hmm. imaging. And I think, I don't know. Dustin, that's a pretty good segue into our topic, right? Yeah, yeah. So before before we dive right in, though, so you uh, you grew up in Boulder, then that's yeah. like one of the astronomy capitals of the country. Oh yeah, I lived in Boulder. I lived in Boulder for thirty years, and um, yeah, I graduated high school from Centaurus, went to the University of Colorado, got my physics degree there, and um, I only moved out when I got a job at the Dark Energy Survey at the University of Illinois in two thousand seven. So I lived there most of my time, and you're right, the the, the night skies there are unparalleled they are yeah. well that's not oh, true absolutely. new mexico has better skies i'll just tell you flat mm -hmm. out nobody has better skies than new mexico but but the it was it was gorgeous boulder had a lot of light pollution problems and mm -hmm. um it you know had a lot of uh seeing issues uh because of the high winds there but uh yeah the star i mean you, all you had to do is drive 20 minutes out of town and go up to say chautauqua or something like that and uh, the the stars were so bright they could they would almost cast a shadow. I mean, it was just breathtaking. And that's still how it is here. I mean, you know, we're in Carlsbad, California, right now, right here on the coast, right between LA and San Diego. I mean, it, I don't know how it gets much more light polluted. You know, you <laughs> yeah, two, <that's> true. <laughs> two major cities, and I drive twenty minutes home, and I can see the Milky Way overhead every night inland. You know, it, it's amazing in California how you can get those skies so quickly. But um, yeah, I mean, the skies change everything, and I grew up in Alabama and then moved to Tennessee. And in both areas, we had so much sky glow. It was very difficult on the visual astronomy side to really appreciate without knowing what I was looking at. It would be very, very difficult to appreciate it. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we'll get that too. But Well, on some level, um, visual astronomy is helped 
by light pollution because if you've ever tried to find the Big Dipper in, say, a, a reasonably small town where you got light pollution, you can find it. You can see it because the seven stars of the Big Dipper, at least, are bright enough that they can shine past a lot of the uh, a lot of the light pollution. But then you go out of town, you look in that same area of sky, and you see all these stars. You're like, <laughs> yeah. what? And, you know, and you're like, you can't find it. It's like, well, I thought yeah. it was right there. That's a strange experience too, especially after doing astronomy for a while, going out to some of these dark skies and I get lost. I still do. Mm-hmm. I get out there and you start looking up. Like I have no idea what I'm looking at. And I've done this every night for the past four years. I have no idea what I'm looking at, but yeah, you get under dark skies and it changes everything because it just becomes a wall of stars. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I'll, I'll just briefly mention, I went to the, uh, the Andes in Chile uh, went to the uh, Blanco four meter telescope there at Cerro Tololo. And that's the Southern hemisphere. And it is, they build telescopes out there for a reason, folks. I mean, those <laughs> skies are dark and they're dry and they, there's no, there's not a cloud to be seen anywhere. And the large and small Magellanic clouds, again, like I say, they cast a shadow. They're so bright and it's, I couldn't find a single constellation. I'll just, I'll just tell you straight up. <laughs> I couldn't find a single one. I, I, yeah. I was looking, and I know all the northern ones. I don't know, right. and some of the southern ones, southern hemisphere. Right. But I couldn't find a single one. It was that yeah. many stars. Yeah, I knew what region weird. of the sky I was looking. Okay, well that's north. I can kind of tell that's north, and I mean, you know, maybe that's somewhere in there is the Big Dipper. But I, you know, right. <laughs> there's there's no way to not be overwhelmed looking at skies like that. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's there's no way not to be. But you don't need them. You don't need that kind of sky as much as it would be great. And I wish, I think Dustin and I both would wish that that was the kind of sky everybody had. We don't all get to enjoy that. Uh, and I mean, Dustin, I saw pictures of you uh, in the middle of Times Square with a telescope. What was that like? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're trying to attack that problem, uh, the light pollution problem, but um, and that's probably a podcast all its own. You know, I'm sure that's a that's a pretty big issue. But um, yeah, we we developed a filter at OPT and um, it cuts right through light pollution. So, yeah, we uh, we've imaged from Times Square uh, before I got thrown out by the counterterrorism unit. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> they were like, well, they know, think it was guess- a bazooka. Yeah, they didn't know. They knew I had these these huge instruments that I didn't ask permission for and just started setting up in Times Square with a lot of people. And oh it drew God. really, really big crowds. And uh, yeah, we set it up and we started taking pictures. And, um, you know, it uh, it was one of those things where you could tell people looking at this stuff in Times Square just could not believe that because you can't you can't even see the sky. It's so bright. I mean, you've got these oh, yeah. huge these huge panels everywhere shining advertising at you and we're shooting right past it to get to nebulae emission nebulae out there seeing this stuff and uh yeah it was an unbelievable experience and we're doing a lot more of that just to show people what's out there <laughs> wow that's that yeah that is unfortunately also another sign of our times i guess that you got thrown out of there um but oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was there's a there's a great picture of me getting me getting a good talking to from the <laughs> right on its back. It says counterterrorism. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's all right. That's all right. Oh, One for the team. Oh, man. Well, for the, I would like to have seen those images. Oh, I bet they did. <laughs> what, uh, let me uh, I want to get to our topic. But did you uh, did you post those images anywhere? Are they on your Instagram or what? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So I post a lot of that on my Instagram. I've actually got the picture of the counterterrorism unit guy on everyclearnight.com. That's where we kind of set up this page for anyone that wants to post images. They can. Uh, it's called everyclearnight.com. And it's it's nothing special. It's just a place to post astronomy images and for people to go see other people's astronomy images. Uh, a lot of us at OPT use it. But yeah, you can see those uh, those pictures there. Wow, that sounds cool. Okay, so definitely mm -hmm. check that out. Okay, oh, yeah. let's let's... Okay, visual imaging versus, uh, I keep saying visual imaging, visual observing versus yep. imaging. Yeah, me versus you. That's right. right? That's what that's what we're talking. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right, I'll do it. I'll take the visual side. I know you're the okay. imager, and sure. uh, I'll take the I'll take the the visual side. Um, mm -hmm. So the point of this is we want to talk about which is better, right? Which is which is what are their you know, what are their pros and cons and right. you know which is better and I'm gonna I'm all right I think it's a good idea I will take the visual side and here's why visual observing is better first of all it's easier you don't got to learn a lot uh, to do it you can go outside and put in an eyepiece and you're visual observing it's also mm -hmm. cheaper unless you go out and buy a bunch of Nagler eyepieces, which are several hundreds of tens of hundreds of dollars uh, mm -hmm. that you can uh, observe with. You, most most people don't do that. They use the, the eyepieces that come with their Dobsonian or their, their uh, Schmidt-Cast, whatever they happen to buy, and right. they just go out and observe. It also doesn't take as long to set up. If you've got a go-to telescope, you go outside, basically you plop it on the ground, you turn it on, and then the next thing you know, it's visually polar aligned because it does all that for you. And then you put in an eyepiece and you type in M57, ring nebula, off it goes, and you look in the eyepiece, oh, that's lovely, that's the ring nebula. And then you say, now I'd like to see the Andromeda Galaxy, M31 Andromeda Galaxy, enter go-to, and off it goes. You look in the eyepiece. Oh, that's really lovely. There's the Andromeda galaxy. And I'd like to Oh, I seem to have some light pollution here today. Let me put in one of Justin's new filters. And I put in a filter. And I put my eyepiece in. Maybe adjust the focus a little bit. Wow, look at that picture or that image in my retina of the Andromeda galaxy. And so those are some of the reasons why I think visual observing will never, ever, ever take the place of, of imaging with a lot of expensive cameras. Sure, I agree. Um, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think that you could probably take it even further when you say it's not expensive. I mean, a lot of people, what they their hobby is taking binoculars out for visual. Yep. Right, and and that's it. And I mean, that's one of the best ways to, especially if you can get to dark skies, looking around those skies that you can't figure out what's what and where anything is with binoculars. It's unbelievable scanning the sky that way. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree that it is very, very simple. That's actually how I got started. Right, was the the scope I bought for Ginny was a Dobsonian, and so I didn't I didn't know where to go for information, so I used it visually for a long time before we realized we could put a camera on it. And even then I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know how mounts worked. So I did all this hard work and calculations to build my own little equatorial platform to throw this thing on to try to track and everything. But um, yeah, there's something to be said for visual. I really, and, and look, I'm as far the other way as you can possibly go. And I'll get into that in a second. I mean, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even have an eyepiece at home. I don't have an eyepiece in my observatory. Oh, I don't have one Dustin. at home. No. I don't have one anywhere. I can't tell you the last time other than to show other people things like Saturn and the things that I feel like everyone in the world needs to see. Yeah. Don't you, you love need... being that guy that shows somebody Saturn through the telescope? There's nothing better. The There's nothing better. People cry, man. They cry when, 
see it. They freak. They, they really freak. Oh my god, look at that. That's I can see the rings. And they really right. do freak out. Yeah. And so um my friends at Skywatcher, they they gave me um uh a daub, a big daub, a 20 inch. And so we use that visually to show people, you know, here in the cities, um things like Saturn and Jupiter. Jupiter's still my favorite by far. Looking at Jupiter, there's nothing that that is close in my opinion just seeing the moons you can see the shadows of the moons on the planet it's just unreal yeah there's a lot but, more detail to check out there's the bands yeah, the red spot there's a lot more fun things to to look at it's unbelievable i think that's really probably if i'm if i'm giving something credit for hooking me it was probably either jupiter or the moon through a big scope but um there's there's something to be said for putting your eye up to an eyepiece and knowing this is like I am truly experiencing this exactly the way it is. It's coming through live right now. And this is this is I mean, this light has been traveling sometime. I mean, if you're looking at something like what the whirlpool, what is it? 29, 28 million years that light had to travel at 186,000 miles a second. It's been on that long journey and you're capturing that with your own eye through an eyepiece live. That's There's right. nothing. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It gives you chills. I can't even talk about it without getting chills. You know, <laughs> it's true because it happens and you see that stuff and it's, it's so You're directly far. connected to that. Exactly. That it's, moment. it's so far from our daily realities living in this, the little bubbles we live in that I feel like, um, there, there is a lot to be said for visual astronomy and I can't put it down at all. And if I'm walking past somebody that's got a scope, I always take a, take a look. I do. But, I mean, at heart, I am a photographer. It's what I love. I love the complexity. I love the challenge. I love pointing a camera into places where there is no light and doing a 40 or a 90 hour exposure and seeing in high resolution, high detail, high contrast, all of these things that otherwise people would never know exist, you know? And I just think that it's just, it's there's there's a it's a completely different process. It's almost a different hobby in a lot of ways. But uh, and you're right, it is generally more expensive. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be super expensive. A lot of people get started for around five hundred bucks with like a camera tracker. Because I'd say most most people in the world at this point have a camera, you know, of some sort. They have a camera. And I've shot a lot of astrophotography with a point and shoot off the hood of my car with no tripod. And even there's yeah. even astrophotographers using uh, smartphones now. So. You absolutely can. Yeah. yeah, you absolutely can. But what I love about astrophotography beyond just the fact that I think that it's arguably the most challenging type of photography out there is that it's a shareable experience. And it's not that visual is not. But if you think about visual, the way you're going to maximize visual, uh, the visual hobby is you're going to take your telescope out to a dark site, and which usually means you're going somewhere very, very remote and getting everyone to partner up and go meet out there is a challenge. So usually for astronomy events, getting a thousand people somewhere is a really big task. And then you have the problems like, well, maybe it's cloudy or whatever happens, right? If the yeah, moon's you've always got to have that contingency of what you're going to do. Yeah, with the clouds exactly. It's, it's very difficult to share it in a meaningful way as far as, you know, sharing it with the masses. And so if you're looking through an eyepiece, you've got one person looking at a time and, ex and experiencing that. And then once they leave the eyepiece, all they have left is that experience to describe to somebody. So the image is no better than their description of that image to anyone else, right? And maybe they sketched it or something like that, but ultimately it's their ability to describe something at that point that is going to be the shared part of that experience. Imagers can walk out and say, look what I saw. 
and they can say that 24-7, I can post an image to Instagram, something as simple as Instagram, and share it with 2 million people. You know, whatever it is, I can share it all day long. Like I said, go to Every Clear Night, you can see several different people's images, and it becomes a shareable experience in a real way. You're at, you know, anywhere, anywhere. You're out at the grocery store, and somebody sparks up a conversation about the shirt, like the one you're wearing now, where Pac-Man's eating the entire solar system. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody sparks up a conversation. It's, it's very hard for you to say, yeah, I, I saw, you know... I saw Andromeda, and let me tell you what I saw in the eyepiece. But for me, I pull out my cell phone and I say, look at Andromeda in high resolution. That's what I love about it. Yeah. That I've got something to bring with me to say, this is what astronomy is for me. And I guess in this day and age, I get I get it. I mean, we all need to share everything we do from, you know, the spaghetti we ate at the restaurant to, you know, uh, what our dog is is sniffing at that particular moment. So we do share a lot of things. And of course, you're absolutely right that amateur astronomy is no different. You can share the latest photo that you've taken. But a lot of it depends, folks, I think, and this is important to me, on the time, on the kind of person you are. I don't like to share everything I do with everybody on social media. Mm-hmm. I like to feel the connection when the, like what Dustin said, when those photons from M M fifty one hit your retina, that is a direct connection and right. uh, to that object, and that is something that I just like to savor. I like to look, sit down on a chair, look through that eyepiece with with coats all around me because it's freezing like crazy outside, <laughs> and just stare at it. And, and then I'll look up from my eyepiece and I'll go back down into the eyepiece again. And and that is a very solitary, very solemn experience that I would not trade for all the followers on Instagram. And so there's, there's another aspect to it that is incredibly connecting to the universe mm-hmm. when you do that, when you connect yourself, when you plug yourself, unplug yourself from the internet and maybe plug yourself into the cosmos, you can see and feel completely different. And for me, it's rejuvenating. And that's what visual observing does for me. And Dustin's right. You can do all these other things, take amazing photos, share them with amazing people, and they'll go, wow, that's amazing. And and you you can be very proud, rightfully so, that you have mastered a very difficult thing with your with your telescope. But there's also, you know, this idea that you and I suppose if you're on Photoshop and you're making your your images and you're you're creating, you're getting that a, a different kind of connection, one that perhaps I don't relate to as much, but as, as than a photographer might. But to me, it's like being a nature photographer going out with your SLR and, you know, like what these National Geographic photographers do and capturing these most amazing uh, images of places around the globe, there's a connection there that they have that none of us can fully appreciate either. So um, right. there's, there's two sides of it. It's, a lot of it depends on the kind of person you are. I don't know, Dustin, would you characterize amateur astronomy, the hobby, primarily as a solo activity? I mean, do you ever really go out much with other people? Uh, well, I don't know. I think I may, I may be the wrong, I'm kind of an exception to that. So I, uh, you know, you're always sharing with others. Yeah. My, my entire purpose here is to make, to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible and, uh, you know, make them successful. There's nothing that makes me happier than when I can open up my observatories or my equipment or just helping people get their own equipment, get them started and then seeing them take better pictures than I can. I love watching that process of them 
learning and just taking it to an entirely new level, uh, nothing makes me happier. So I've got to say, you know, yeah, a huge part of what we're doing here is all about sharing. So uh, in general, I'd say, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a very, you know, individual type experience. It's just you and, you know, the universe around you. But um, for me, no, it never is. Like I can tell you of, of the observatories we own and, you know, even the other projects, you know, we're putting a telescope into space in 2020. And the whole purpose of that thing is to share it with the entire planet. So, no, for us, it's all about making space accessible to everyone. I know. I can't wait for the podcast where we talk about that more, but uh, that stuff more. Well, okay. okay. I, I don't know if I'm weird or not, um, but I, it, to me, it's always been a solitary activity. I've always, whether when I was raising my boys and I had family and it was always, you know, after the boys were in bed, I would take the telescope out and set it up and, and spend a few hours outside. Uh when they were interested and, and they were around, sure. I would share it with them as well. But mostly right. it's been a solitary activity for me almost well, exclusively. I think it's, a, it's that feeling, right? Especially, I mean, even visual. Let's, let's just say visual. It's like you said, when you share Saturn with someone and you can see that you just changed part of their world. <laughs> you just changed their perspective on many things. But it's almost a philosophy of its own. Yeah. When you talk to an astronomer, you can tell you're talking to an astronomer, usually. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I feel like it, it comes with its own philosophy and its own understanding, you realize how big everything is. And um, I think it's it's something that's very important. But, you know, my first four years of college were for philosophy. And uh, I came out and when we bought that telescope, I told Jenny, I was like, you know, I realized then I, I didn't need to pay all for four years of schooling for that. I should have just bought a telescope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I learned more in the last 10 minutes about, you know, my, my, my understanding of things around me looking through this eyepiece than I ever did from those books, but uh, maybe that's just me. But I just, I think that, you know, it, it really is an experience that's like no other. Well, the, uh, uh, I guess in, 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 in my perspective of this, I've, I guess I've always used uh, the visual observing aspect of it as a kind of a meditation. It's been, I, I needed to be in a mood. First of all, I needed to be in the right mood to take my telescope out. I, uh, they were almost, they're almost always heavy. The ones I had was, I had a, um, a 10 inch, uh, LX 200, uh, that I had for many, many years and it weighed 75 pounds. And so to get it outside was a real, um, I really needed to want to go out there with it. And so, uh, I, you know, I set up the tripod. This wasn't, this was, it was go-to, but it was before they, they all had GPS. So I still had to polar align it and, and do the, the three point, the three star finder method for it and tell it where the stars were. And then I could sit down and start looking at things. And that was usually at half an right. hour, 45 minutes. Uh, sure. but once I was set up and I was out there and I was sitting in the quiet under the Colorado skies, it was very, uh, it was very meditative for me. And so, um, I don't know. That's sort of how I've always observed. And then, I, you know, imaging was something that I did when I wanted to. Another thing you need to understand about me is I come from a professional background where I've worked in professional astronomy most of my life. Mm -hmm. So if I right. if I did imaging, it was to get I didn't care about the pretty pictures. I wanted the flux. I wanted the calibrated fits image to come off of that mm -hmm. camera so that I could measure a quantity. And so, right. uh, that's where I look and almost never folks. I mean, this is something you don't know. Maybe you don't do know about professional astronomy aside from Hubble and those telescope pictures that you see from Keck and those sorts of things. Most astronomical images aren't pretty pictures. Um, right. they are those, those gray, they're gray scale and they, 
the 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 brightness of a pixel actually means something. It has a unit, a scientific unit associated with it. So there's a slightly different bent on those uh, when you use them for astronomy versus uh, just visual like art. <laughs> so. Yeah, usually professional astronomers look at pictures like mine and other you know pretty picture takers, and they're like, "Why would you do that to the data? <laughs> yeah. Why?" Why would you destroy the data that way? Yeah, you messed you know, it up. No. I can't do anything with this. I can't. Look, this tells me nothing about the Orion Nebula. Oh, right. sure, I can see the trapezium is lovely in there, but I mean, that's you know, what am I going to do with this? Besides hanging on my wall. Well, that's what you're right. Do with it. Right. Uh, another thing about astronomers is they don't know uh, much about the the day to day motions of the night sky, and that's something you learn as a visual observer. Is you, they don't you know. They don't, I mean, other than maybe a few constellations, they generally aren't that familiar with the night sky itself. They right. know what they know. They know their area of expertise really well. But the general basic astronomy, uh, a lot of times they couldn't They couldn't help you much. So that's another interesting little factoid working in the realm of professional astronomy. So, okay, well, what about, so we've talked about visual observing. We've talked about imaging. Where, what, let's talk a little bit about the future of these two methods of of observing where do you think they're headed yeah yeah you know i'd like to i'd like to hear your opinion on the visual side of i mean because it's it's been around obviously so much longer than imaging and how does that transition with with imaging being this boom because of like you said things like social media being able to share the experience what do you think happens there how do you how do you keep it growing as a hobby for visual astronomy it's all optical um al nagler did more for visual observing than any single person around you he is a he ran teleview he may still be running teleview i don't know uh yeah yeah that was a great but he is uh have you met him oh yeah he's he's a friend he's a good guy he's he's on my list i I need to meet that guy we should get him on everybody yeah we definitely can (laughs) everybody at uh actually david his son will be here and uh i think next month he's going to be here for a few days but um yeah, Al visits OPT from time to time, and uh, everybody at Teleview is amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. That, and and so I mean, he's one of, like he's an amazing person. He's one of he's one of the people I uh, very much would love to to meet because he did he invented an eyepiece design uh, that gives you very high magnification and a very wide field view. That's something you almost never can get. So the future of visual observing, while that's there's been many eyepiece designs already in place for decades that have really done a good job Al Nagler's uh, designs uh, are one of them uh, where you get the future I think in uh, visual observing is going to be in uh, eyepiece design and optical coatings I think that as light pollution becomes worse and as you know uh, uh materials become more uh, available to make things like refractors and and reflectors uh i think that the coatings that we use will make the images brighter on your retina um and i think those will only get better and play and and this is something like when the james webb space telescope which is being built right now by um by nasa it's you know a lot of people complain about how late it is how much it's costing but the technology that comes off of that is going to go into coatings for infrared uh, detectors. I'm sorry for infrared uh, mirrors, which are going to, and then the detectors because that's an infrared telescope are going to are going to trickle down into cameras that you can buy from OPT, and right. and you'll be able. But that's the future of visual astronomy. But I mean imaging, but the visual part of it, those coatings, and eyepiece designs are the future. 
Yeah, it's amazing how fast that that stuff is already happening. I can't tell you how many mirrors we have to get gold plated anymore for customers that are doing IR stuff. Um, you know, and, and it's that's because gold is highly reflective in the infrared. You don't need much, right. but right. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this: what What do you think about kind of a cross between the two? I've seen you know this uh, this new hybrid where it's digitally assisted visual astronomy where you know the eyepieces can be enhanced or um, you know the light gathering power can happen digitally but you're still using you're still the practice is still the same of visual where you're looking into the yeah, eyepiece. that i think there'll be more of those but um the, back in the day back in the 50s and 60s they used to use photomultiplier tubes which would basically when a photon hit it it would not digitally but um, um elect electronically uh, magnify that signal to make it brighter so you could look at very dim things and see them brighter it's not too unlike how the uh, night vision goggles work for the military um, right. they just amplify what few photons are already there sure so that could be done the problem of course as you know with imaging is that you're only going to be able to do so much better before the noise hits you before the noise mm -hmm. gets in your way so if you had, let's say, an eyepiece with a CCD or something, CMOS on it, that actually took what few photons that were there, were striking it, and then amplified them somehow, uh, you would get a, you could do that, but they would, you'd get a lot of noise, and then you're back to exposure times. <laughs> you know, in order to be able to look at, a, through an eyepiece with your eye, and see it real time, there's only so much you're going to be able to amplify the existing photons. You need to sit there and collect them for a while, which is what imaging does. So you got to wait. And so I only think, I think that there's going to, you might see some where you could look, you have to, they'd be noisy and grainy and you'd see them real time, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be anything like an image. Sure. So, I mean, what do you think about the idea? You can probably speak on this better than I can, but the idea that, you know, the eye refreshes what, 60 times a second, roughly, something right? Like that, yeah. So, something like that. So, let's say if you're looking and you've got a sensor that you can control ISO on, so you can amplify the image, essentially the gain of right, the image. Right. And then you slow that exposure down to even instead of a 60th of a second, let's say a 10th of a second, your eye wouldn't really pick it up as being like super laggy, but you know, you could definitely gather a lot more photons. No, but the act eye. of turning up the gain just made it really noisy. And sure. so, so it would be very grainy. You're not going to yeah. get away with the grain, especially with, uh, with things like thermal noise, because all, ca all detectors, uh, have this, they, 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 you know, when heat hits them, they make noise and that's just, you got to get rid of it. So what could happen maybe, and now that I'm thinking about it is you could have these high free refresh rates, but let's say in the eyepiece, you've got a computer that does a quick dark, uh, image, subtracts it right out, does a quick gain and divides it out. And then right. you might end up with a pretty decent image if it can do this fast enough. If, if it can do it at 10 Hertz, like you're saying 10 times a right. second then right. um, that might be cool, actually. Yeah. But it'd have to do on-the-fly processing. And maybe computers are fast enough now. Maybe they could. Yeah. That's an interesting idea, actually. Let me know when you develop it. We'll take them here. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Real time. That, that, might, that would be amazing, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you could connect it to a, instead of an eyepiece, forget that, connect it to a monitor and stand there and have 10 of you start looking at it. And well, and that's not too different from what's happening with video astronomy now, right? I mean, we were talking about this earlier today. You mentioned the, uh, the boom that kind of, or the sea change, as you called it, when um, webcams kind of took over for uh, planetary imaging. But we're still seeing a lot of that with visual astronomy now. They're just changing slightly 
to using screens, like I've seen projectors even out in dark sites where they're projecting the live video image from the telescope onto the screen so that, you know, 30 people can stand around instead of one person at an eyepiece. Wow, that would be cool. So um, what do you think about cost? Is, is the cost coming down on these cameras? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got something called a Revolution Imager that's just a, a few hundred bucks. I mean, it's it's way under $1,000. And that's uh, what a lot of people are using for video imaging or even, you know, uh, inexpensive planetary cameras that do super high frame rate. But yeah, instead of just running it to a laptop and saving it, they're just kicking that signal out to either a computer screen to show a lot of people or, uh, you know, like I said, a projector onto a big screen. So it's, you know, dozens of people can stand around it and see these images rolling in live. Of course, that destroys your night vision. People at star parties get upset about that. But, um, <laughs> but true, being able you to, want to be the most popular yeah. person at a star party, show up <laughs> with your, with your headlights on in the car. You will, you will quickly be the most popular person. And I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Or start shining a projector onto a 20 foot screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So so the prices are coming down then and is that oh, absolutely is that going to be what the major what the future is of imaging do you think the major impact would be just making things cheaper or what about what about uh, uh, detector sizes well everything is getting a lot less expensive uh, i mean by the day almost you know um i mean even computers we've got ent entire computer systems now that come preloaded with software called the stellar mate 155 dollars. it's the entire computer Wi-Fi connectable, so you can run your entire system and your observatory from your cell phone with, you know, a $155 computer preloaded with all the software you need. So, yeah, I mean, you think about what it used to take to be able to run full automation in something. You had to buy the computer. You had to buy the software. You know, you had to buy all of the different connections that were necessary. And, I mean, you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars just for that component. But, and this is just one example of something that is, you know, bringing the costs down so quickly that it's, it's opening the door to so many people that otherwise would not be interested because they don't want to jump the $10,000 hurdle, you know, but 150 bucks, most people can say, yeah, I can, I can jump in on that, you know, and I think that's good. I think it should come down. It needs to come down. This stuff needs to be simple and it needs to be accessible. Well, the, so I, I, so I guess that's it. I mean, that's, that, that's our, um, that's our take on the, you know, visual versus the imaging side of, of astronomy. I think there's room for everybody folks. That's the message here. Don't feel like you have to jump into this hobby and soak like $10,000 into equipment because you don't. And if you, but if you, it's and you can graduate into this, you can do this gradually. You can start with a scope that's decent that gives you lots of good visual images. You can enjoy the night sky, make that direct connection with the cosmos, and then start buying some stuff that lets you image. And we're going to help. We're going to help you with all that here on this podcast. You're going to learn all about how to do it. And so, what I'm hearing you say there is that imaging wins. Uh, of course, I didn't say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, imaging let's... does not win. I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm saying there's room for both. Okay. 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 Uh, maybe I just I'm not going to be tribalistic about this, but no. Yeah. 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 It's, maybe I it's very. Uh, although I will say it's a pain in the it's a pain in the butt to get your you know out there and set up for imaging, and it so is. you know it's uh, it just depends on the kind of person you are, I guess. So, um, so I, I'm always going to be a visual observer. Always. Right. Absolutely. Uh, well, we've got, uh, we should probably talk about next week, right? We've got another show next week. Yeah. We're going to try and post these weekly and um, get them out 
every single day or every single week that we can. And I'm going to be putting them on all the major uh, syndication, Spotify and and iTunes and all the places where you get uh, where you get these uh, podcasts from. So please subscribe. Please share these out with people. Let people know this is happening and sp- help us spread the word because uh, this is we're very excited about this project. So we're hoping that you guys will be as excited as we are. And as far as giving us feedback, there's lots of what are some of the ways they can do that, Justin or Dustin? Uh, well, I mean, you have uh, you have so many channels that people can reach out to you directly for this. But I I also have some channels. So Gibson Picks, G I B S O N P I C S, is my personal Instagram. It's also linked to the OPT Corp Instagram, and uh, we check that daily. So if you want to reach out on there uh, or Facebook, it's pretty it's pretty easy to find us. To tell you the truth, if you're looking, you're going to find us yeah, that's true. Um, and um, you know if you reach out on there and you got ideas you you got things that we should uh, we should add to this I mean we're listening we we want to make this for you so please reach out any criticisms any ideas anything you have send it to us and uh, we're listening we'll definitely get back to you yeah and uh, and uh, same thing for you you want to kind of go through some of the ways yeah, people can reach well for me it's all deep astronomy so whether you're on Facebook uh, YouTube uh, let's see um, <laughs> All of it is all deep as Twitter. <laughs> all of it's deep astronomy. And uh, I, I will be making this podcast. I will be posting it also on Anchor FM, anchor.fm. Uh, and that what I like about that platform is that it gives you the ability, if you're listening on Anchor, to give us a voice message back. And we'll link, we can include it in the podcast. So it's a way for you to leave a voice response. Uh, oh, that's to great. Us. So that's great. check it If you're on Anchor, uh, and, and please just do it. And and we can also invite other people in uh, to be in the, in the podcast if you're on Anchor through their app as well. So it's a, it's a pretty cool way to go about it. Yeah, and please reach out. I mean, one of the first... The- the responses I get from people are always the same on Instagram. It's always, Hey, um, sorry to bother you, but don't, don't feel that way at all. We want to talk about this. I mean, we are both, I don't know. I don't know how I could be more obsessed with astronomy. I'd talk <laughs> about it every second of every day. So yeah, reach out and let's, let's get this thing rolling. All right, guys. Well, that, yeah. So definitely, definitely use those methods to get back in trust with, in, t- in touch with us. Um, Dustin, what do we got coming up next time? So I have a really close friend of mine from uh, another company I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with. They are, you know, changing the game on high-end telescopes, a company called Planewave. And we've got uh, one of the VPs of the company coming in. He's doing all of the marketing and pushing the company forward in so many ways. His name is uh, Ralph Emerson. He'll be here with us. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a great time talking to one of the most innovative companies in the industry. And we're going to keep bringing industry leaders on. So we'll have different CEOs, presidents, the you know, just basically every company that uh, that we talk to. I know a lot of people are excited about it. We're going to have a lot of professional photographers. But next week, we will have Ralph here. And uh, he's he's a funny guy, man. We should have a lot of fun. Oh, good. All right. Well, that's great. So that'll be next time. On, on With that, I will go ahead and sign off. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to our email at hangouts at deepastronomy.com.